Hello, everyone, and welcome to More of a Comment Than a Question. My name is Rachel Hartman, and with me today is my friend and co-host, Paul Connor. How are you doing, Paul? I am not doing great. I'm exhausted. Uh, my baby Hugo has been sick. He's got an ear infection. So both Saturday and Sunday, we had to take him to urgent care. And he's been waking up a lot at night with a lot of congestion. And so I haven't slept very much. So I guess what I'm saying is you're going to have to carry <laughs> carry the podcast. Or you, you and our guests are really going to have to carry me through this podcast today. All right. Well, we'll do our best. Um, sorry to hear that about Hugo. Hope he feels better. Yeah. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing well. I have my sister here visiting from Israel. Uh, she got here on Thursday and we've been keeping busy. Um, went to the state fair this weekend. Is this the sister you keep writing blogs about? No, okay. <laughs> that sister uh, is not coming to the wedding and um, actually refuses to leave the land of Israel because God forbids it. Um, so it's a good reason. Yeah. Um, but this other sister is a little more moderate in her views, much more moderate. She's an atheist like me. And so I feel like we're setting up some, uh, um, some of the tone for the rest of the podcast where we might t- talk about religion for a little bit. Um, so anyway, let's just jump to our guest. To the guest. Yeah, yeah. Well um, so on today we have Stephen Cho, who is a third year PhD student in IO psychology at George Mason university, uh, where he researches leadership, personality, psychometrics, and faith at work. Um, he's also on the leadership team with me at project short. Uh, where he serves as the Director of Finance and Administration. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks so much. It's nice to meet you, both of you. Yeah, welcome. Um, so tell me about uh, Project Short. Like, So I know like the short community have long short. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, I got to stop using the same jokes again and again and again. Yeah. It, no, okay, so... Doesn't your mug no. say dad jokes or something like that? <laughs> I saw that as I was hopping on. Didn't say anything at the moment. Ask me about my dad jokes. No, I just lo- I love the name Project Short. I think it's it's really funny to think of it as an organization devoted to helping short people. But all right. Um, so first of all, we wanted to talk a little bit about your research. Um, so, yeah, what, what are you working on that... Um, you're most interested in slash excited about right now and also sure. um, so, sorry yeah. before you jump into that like maybe just situate us situate us a little bit about io psychology in general because as a social psychologist mm-hmm. i don't know anything about any other kind of psychology <laughs> yeah definitely i love how you introduced me as io psychology because no one really knows what io stands for so it makes it all the more mysterious and Hopefully our listeners are wondering, what in the world is I.O.? What could that possibly stand for? So to calm the curiosity, it stands for Industrial Organizational Psychology, which probably doesn't help. <laughs> um, it's actually really funny that the I side, industrial side, is a, is a legacy term that most people in my field today kind of say, eh, 
it kind of confuses people more than it helps. Um, simply put, we study psychology at work. So in some ways, we're actually kind of a subfield of social psychology, Rachel. So we're kind of like applied social psychology, applying a lot of social psych principles, but studying it only in the context of people in the workplace setting. Um, and so that's things like leadership and teamwork, um, well-being, job satisfaction, but because of our history, we overlap a little with some other fields. So we um, have a little bit of overlap with economics. We overlap quite a bit with business, um, business management uh, researchers and theories, um, a little bit of law as well. Um, so when we talk about employment law, hiring law and things like that, so we have to get a little bit of training there. Um, so that's kind of the broad field of IO psychology. Honestly, most people just say organizational psychology because that makes a little bit more sense. It's the psychology of people in organizations. Um, related fields are like human resources, um, organizational behavior, things like that. Um, to answer your question, Paul, my particular interests within organizational psychology tend to lean towards, as Rachel said, leadership teams, personality, psychometrics, that kind of, those kind of topics. So I primarily study under Stephen Zaccaro here, George Mason. Um, he's the leadership and teams faculty. And um, I'm working on projects, things like different ways of measuring leadership behaviors, of understanding um, uh, shared leadership structures. So when you have organizations with more than just one person in charge. Um, and then I also work with another faculty member here, Phil Sukli, who specializes in psychometrics. So uh, for those who don't know the measurement of things, basically. Um, so we talk about measurement of personality quite a bit, and we draw from social psych literature quite a bit for that. Uh, but oftentimes they're talking about it from the perspective of using it as a predictor for work. So like what happens when you use personality in recruitment? So when you use it to select people for a job. Like that. So that's a broad overview. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, I watched that um, documentary. I forget where what it was. Don't on. say the HBO one. Yeah, that personality. One. <laughs> oh my gosh, I could talk. About I feel like that you might have strong feelings about it. We do. Uh, let's broadly speaking, just say that um, they were. There's a lot of errors with that documentary. Okay. What? Um, what? For, for, <laughs> Wait, what documentary? <laughs> no, sorry, like, go ahead. Can Talk we orient about. the listeners? What what documentary we're talking about? Yeah. I'm I don't know what you guys are talking about. Sorry, um, there there was a document documentary released by HBO. I want to say about nine months ago or something like that. Uh, that was discussed seeing the use of personality in general, although they talked a lot about at work because uh, basically the whole thing was saying we shouldn't necessarily use personality and kind of poking all the holes in personality theory and things like that. And generally speaking, the reason I say uh, a lot of people in my field are passionate about that documentary is because it's right in the sense that they, they did point out a lot of problems with with research and personality specifically as it pertains to predicting work performance. But the problem is it was focusing on measures of personality that are largely defunct in modern research on personality as a work predictor. Um, it would focus a lot on Myers-Briggs and other personality theories that have some usefulness elsewhere, but most organizational psychologists would say are not at all useful for pre predicting work. Yeah, that's interesting. My takeaway from it, like my understanding of the narrative that they were trying to weave was mostly about the Myers-Briggs and how it's like mm -hmm. a bad measure of personality. I didn't really see it like as a broader attack on using personality tests at work, but I guess 
I was mostly focused on the the Myers-Briggs stuff because I yeah. thought that was yeah interesting that they were helping to debunk that. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote a piece in response to it at, at, at for Fast Company, pretty popular, like just business pop psychology website, um, and talked about how it's right and then how we've improved on it to use things like the big five personality test to measure uh, constructs that actually do predict, predict work performance. But then I also countered myself and brought in some things about how even with like the big five, the, the, the free 60 question test that you take online still has problems. Um, and there are issues with like on a scale one to five, like, I'm sick of liquor type tests, those scale of one to five tests. Um, and a lot of my work is in thinking, how can we do, how can we measure personality and other constructs without using those horrible scales, basically? Um, I recognize they're easy to use and I still use them for other things because it's easy to use. Uh, but if we really want to be accurate, we shouldn't be using them. Anyway, so I wrote that as well. So I kind of just said, okay, personality has issues. Here's how we've improved upon it as orc psychologists. Here are still the issues that are left. So conclusion, if you're a manager at work and you're Googling personality tests for my team, don't use it. (laughs) I have never taken a personality test for any kind of job, but I've also never really had an important job. So I remember like... (laughs) You've never had an important job. Did you really just say that? Yeah, no, like security guard. Like, I mean... I guess I'm a postdoc now. Nobody gave me a personality test uh, for this job. Um, still not such an important job, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't <laughs> say. But um, I was just wanted to ask, so I remember, like, my wife got really interested in this weird personality battery that she was given at Airbnb, uh, and it was, like, it, it gave – it was a typology – so like the Myers-Briggs, mm-hmm. but it was really like about color somehow. Like some people are oh, no. red, the color some test. people are yeah. yellow. You, you know this? Like, I know and, the color test. And I was trying to figure out what, what are they talking about? But it's all proprietary. Like if you go to this organization's website, they're like, no, all this stuff's secret. It's just this, <laughs> this powerful technology that only we have access to. Um, I assume it's all bullshit right like is there any evidence like i mean airbnb bought into it uh i assumed like pretty smart people run that company uh and they it seems like they paid a lot of money for their employees to do this and my wife was just really into it like she kept for years she was like ah oh, it's because it's because they're a red person and i'm a yellow person. <laughs> like you know like this stuff uh people just get stuck on it and they really they really gravitate towards labels and groups and stuff like that so yeah. uh yeah i guess so um is there is there any evidence supporting that kind of thing or like what um and, and what what is the uh what can organizations do that is effective and and we, who are the organizations that are using this kind of data cuz like i said i've never I've never been given a personality battery mm-hmm. as part of a job interview or anything like that. Um, I know it because I literally had the same experience. My wife was sitting next to me at home and had to do the color test for her company and uh, sit there through a two hour lecture from a guy who was paid a ton of money to come in and tell them what their colors are and how they work together. And uh, she, 
She did not get into it. She saw me there groaning in pain as I was listening to this from across the room. And I eventually just left because I couldn't handle it. <laughs> um, you know, here's the thing. I, I have two responses to it. The first is, at the end of the day, humans are complex people. And, and so no matter what, when you talk about personality, you're taking something that's complex and simplifying it. Now, the question is, how much do you simplify Right? Do you simplify just a little bit or do you go all the way to the point that you say there's only four different groups or four different types and everyone belongs to that type? I think most scientists would say that's too far. But it's still, no matter what, you have to simplify a little. And so to some degree, simplifying a complex world is helpful for people to understand and be able to think about things. You know, I'll admit, I took a Myers-Briggs when I was in college and it told me I'm an introvert. And I actually, like, that actually sometimes in some ways helped me as I think about, okay, there's a reason why you put me in a college party and I'm like, I don't want to be here. And that's what actually got me to think, oh, what are some jobs and careers where I can comfortably sit on my own and do my own work? And that's good. Hence why I'm in academia, basically. So I see there can be usefulness to using groups and categories to just get a better understanding of, of yourself as long as you you remember that is an oversimplification. And if you're okay with that, if you use that as maybe a starting point for discussion is, okay, you identified as red on this color test and you could start there as a conversation as long as there's no, as long as you know it's an oversimplification. That's my first piece. The second speaks a little bit more from the science aspect. I personally think that the density distribution theory of personality is pretty spot on. Um, for th those who don't know, it's this idea that your personality is really a distribution of different behaviors. And that distribution for different people can vary. So like on the, on the scale for introverted to extroverted, it, it basically says in different situations, you might actually be quite introverted at other times of the day or situations, you might actually be quite extroverted. And people not only differ in their average behaviors across situations, but also the width of that distribution, meaning some people are like always introverted no matter what. Others are more spread out. And so because of that theory, from that perspective, yeah, there are people who might actually fit really neatly into a type because they are truly, truly introverted. There is no sign of extroversion in them whatsoever. In that case, they may actually fit a type. And I think that's another reason why types continue to get some interest. First, because of the, just like, it feels right to me. So it makes, it helps me understand myself. And then even from the statistical perspective, like there will be moments where you collect data sets where people do fit really neatly into types because they are so, um, their, their underlying distribution of behaviors are so condensed into one area, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, that, that mostly makes sense. I think <laughs> for it to completely make sense, you'd sort of have to get into the math of it and, and really look at the models. But I think that, um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to hear your perspective on personality. I haven't really like, talked about personality with anyone who really knows what they're talking about. And so it is quite a, um, interesting to hear that. Is it related to this is a bit of a segue. Um, the things that you said that you were skeptical about um, in academia and in research, or is that a completely different thing? I 
think so. I think we can make the segue. Let's let's try. So all right, go for it. You know, when we when we discussed during the episode, my thought was I'd like to talk about the dirty secrets of academia. That just I'm a third year, right? I've only had a couple of years of exposure plus other. Yeah, I did a master's degree beforehand, so I had a little bit of exposure. But even in just this short time, I've just seen so many to put it bluntly, problems with academia and issues that make me just really disappointed. And it questions my trust in the academic process in many ways. Now, I want to be very clear when I say that I still want to go into an academic career. Now, maybe that's just me subjecting myself to pain and torture, and maybe that's the case, but I still want to. And I have a bit of a naive feeling of like, okay, maybe one day I can change some of these issues that I'm noticing. The segue, I would say, is kind of what I said at the beginning of, I contradicted myself in that piece I wrote for Fast Company where I presented, oh, here are improvements we've made with personality, but here are all the issues that we still haven't solved. And a lot of the my feelings of these dirty secrets of academia stem from we don't really, really know the answer to a lot of questions and a lot of important, broad-reaching topics that then go out into the public and people start buying into without really seeing the research. And the research itself is already flawed. Um, And I think I'm particularly um, exposed to this because my field is so applied. The work that we do in organizational psychology, like leadership, teams, personality at work, I mean, everyone works at some point. Right. And so it just has this broad reach where everyone wants to talk about leadership. Like you go to anybody in business and they'll say something, oh, yeah, I love leadership. Or I love reading about leadership. And so it's just such a widespread impact, such that things can easily go wrong in the process from scientific research to actual public impact. And I know, Paul, you said that not many people, you haven't been exposed to personality testing and recruiting before. And that's probably true. You know, at the end of the day, what, 75% of businesses or small businesses in the U.S., less than 50 employees, they're not going to use a personality test for recruitment. But the big ones definitely do. Like, I know for sure Amazon uses personality testing, um, if not other things. Like, there's been recent developments in using machine learning um, algorithms to predict employment and things like that. So uh, the big companies definitely use personality testing. And um, they may be only a few companies, but they affect a lot of people. I think that somewhat segues us into talking about quote unquote dirty secrets, but please tell me where to go from here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, we, um, big part of the brand of this podcast is, uh, complaining about academia. So like you're now like firmly (laughs) in our wheelhouse. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. So I, I, I might say to you that, you know, I, it's always struck me as very interesting um, how uh, poorly our field has communicated the big five to um, lay people, right? Mm. So, uh, for example, um, you know, if you talk about personality with your average college-educated person, they're very quickly going to bring up the Myers-Briggs right, which mm. has not been state-of-the-art science, uh, you know, maybe ever, or at least for a a very long time. Like the big five has been around uh, for much longer um, and is a very sort of a different way of thinking about personality. But I remember talking to Oliver John, you know, one of the architects of the big five, 
and, and just saying like, where's your TED talk, man? Like what, you know, like you've made this big discovery, which is replicable and like, seems like pretty good solid science mm -hmm. to me, like in a lot of ways, just like these five dimensions. Um, and just, it seems to me completely failed to communicate this to the public and everybody out there just either thinks people are different colors or they think people are these 16 boxes in the Myers-Briggs thing. And like why it's not that complicated to think about, well, no, actually like we vary in these five ways and most people are close to the middle actually on most of these things. Like yeah, how, how did we forget to t tell everybody else about the big five, you know, or is it just, yeah, and, and it makes me think, do people just like types so much that they're just not willing to give you a TED Talk to talk about the big five? I don't know. Like, do you have insight into, like, into that? Like, how how does how is everybody out there still unaware of this thing that, like, it feels like academic psychologists have known for, like, 40 years? I love that question, and that great it gives us great direction. Let's basically start from the bottom back, right? We're starting with the public and move backwards to communication to public. So, assuming the research is perfect, which we know it isn't, we'll get there. <laughs> but assuming the research is perfect, why hasn't it gone to the public? I, I, yeah, I'm very passionate about that. I think that um, academics are horrible communicators and horrible writers, if I put it bluntly. I think we're trained to write with long sentences with lots of conjunctions, with multiple prepositional phrases, with lots of jargon, and then the citation format, like putting in 20 citations in the middle of a sentence. It, we're literally trained to write badly, in my opinion, and we're trained to write in a way that the public is not going to understand. So, so the first is the training, and then there's also just the industry where we write and it goes to this journal, right? It goes to a journal. The journal most likely has a paywall, where no one else can access it unless you're in academia. So who's going to read it at the end of the day? Just some faculty and a handful of students. Um, maybe you're lucky enough and your university can give you a couple thousand dollars to pay for open access fees. Then more people can read it. But even with open access, who's going to go to the Journal of Applied Psychology to read about personality at work? No, they're going to go to the Harvard Business Review, or they're going to go to um, uh, they're going to go to Business Insider or Fast Company. They're not going to go to the Journal of Applied Psychology, right? So it's in the wrong place. So so bad writing published in the wrong place, and then I'd say also the wrong motivation. Um, if for academics to go up for tenure, no one cares how many public articles you've written. No one cares how many, at least in my field of org psych, like no one cares if you wrote for, like I wrote for Fast Company. That doesn't count for anything on my CV. Uh, no one cares if, I, I made this comment once to a friend, like I could write one piece, one new article and 5,000 companies use my idea. Or I could write one article and no, and no academic cited. So one article, 5,000 companies use it, no academic cited. Or I could write one article, 5,000 academics cited and no company uses the idea. The second article counts. The first one counts for nothing in my in my field. I am exaggerating a little bit. Like, if my idea got used by five thousand companies, like I'll probably get a little publicity. But the point I'm making is the incentive structure is not there for us to communicate to the public. And then finally, so I got three pieces. The final piece I'll say is from a statistics and like data perspective, we're trained in some ways. I would say the wrong way. So you know, as a thirty year PhD at this point, I've 
done classes in structural equation modeling, multi-level modeling, multi um, uh, machine learning, multivariate, latent class, latent class analysis, factor analysis, all of these advanced techniques, right? Um, and they're cool. I can use them. I can use all these different methods to get the perfect exact answer. And even then, it's not perfect when you get there, but I get a much better answer. I have yet to take a single class, and there are no classes in my field offered for data visualization, communication of data, and things like that. And that, I think, is a huge problem as well, because we're trained to get into the intrinsic, 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 intricacies. We're trained to get into the intricacies of data and to do all these fancy statistics. And we're not trained for the very simple thing of how do I tell people about this result when they have no clue what a factor analysis is and no clue what anything beyond maybe a correlation at best. Um, a good example I have is that we, my colleague and I just uh, informally did a little poll of our alumni who, are, who have done master's or even PhD degrees and are working in human resources and things like that. And we asked them, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? You've gotten all this advanced training. What do you actually do at work? And I think more than 70% of them said, I use Tableau for data visualization and I do correlations and maybe a regression every once in a while. That's it. Less than 5% said I've even used SEM or, um, or multi-level or anything like that. So I think it just goes to show that the, the advanced stuff is important. We need to know how to do it, but we also need to know how to communicate it and to do the simple stuff and to do it well. Um, and I'd say there's worse repercussions. Like I do a great structural equation model. Again, going back to the journals, who's going to read it? I do a simple chart about the probability of getting COVID. It's going to get shared on Twitter by 20,000, 30,000 people pretty quickly. Somebody could easily share it and just think of the impact. And I do a bad chart versus a bad SEM, which one matters more. So that's my ramble about the problems of communication of research. It's funny you bring up Twitter because I actually... I recently shared a tweet with Rachel that I found particularly annoying from an IO psych. I think he's an IO psych. Um, he said, if you want to understand the culture of a team, pay attention to what the high performers do. In taking cultures, stars hoard knowledge and credit. They climb by pushing others down. In giving cultures, stars share ideas and recognition. They rise by lifting others up. So... I just, I just, I, yeah, I like, so I think he's an academic, you know, this tweet. Oh, um, I know this person. This tweet. <laughs> Not personally, sorry, but I know who he is. I, I don't mean this, <laughs> you know, this tweet went viral and it all Everything he posts good. goes viral. It's such a, context. a simple binary. We can divide up the world into taking cultures and giving cultures. And I just like... Uh, I can't, I just can't stand this because it's like, yeah, you're collapsing all the nuance of research into this sort of lame, sort of self-helpy type, like, like pseudo-scientific just bullshit. And like people, people will take this and they'll genuinely go out and just think like we can divide up the world into taking cultures and giving cultures and I'll start diagnosing it and uh, yeah, I like, I don't know. I just thought um, it was a, a good example of kind of uh, 
this annoying tendency to want to like take all the nuance out of everything and give people a give people an idea they like that and yeah and that's much more popular than actually like communicating the complexity which is like yeah you probably there's probably a lot of teams with people that behave in all sorts of different ways uh and probably a lot of it's to do with individual differences uh not like the team and yeah uh probably there's some individuals who sometimes act like a taker and sometimes act like a giver and yeah i yeah i don't know I just really it's a good point. Let me challenge you a little bit, though, because I'll say I, I do agree with you. I mean, it is obviously oversimplifying. And in leadership, we often talk about these leadership guru- gurus, we call them, the, the people who write these famous popular leadership books that all the business leaders read. And they only and we call them in mind, N equals one studies. They're examples of people who are uh, N equals one. Like they just are drawing from their own experience and the people they've talked to, um, and it it can be quite frustrating uh, when you compare that with the large amount of excellent, excellent leadership research that has been amassed but never really communicated. So I, I agree with that sentiment. Now, at the same time, I'd also push and say we do need to oversimplify. It goes back to what I said earlier. At the end of the day, you're taking complex topics and you're simplifying them in order to do research. And how far do you go then? Well, if you want to communicate to a broader audience, you have to simplify. You're not going to be able to communicate all of that nuance. And frankly, if you try to, most people won't care. And I do think that's a problem with academia because we're trained to explain nuance. We're trained to always say, but to always say, with the exception of, and I agree with that as a sentiment of we need to think that way, but it comes down to if I'm trying to communicate to a broader audience, I can't do that. I have to oversimplify. I have to give broader simplification, oversimplification, broader broader concepts that they can latch onto. I'm not, I want to be careful because I don't want to say like, oh, people are stupid. And so we have to like make it super simple for them. Maybe a a kinder way to say it is people are busy and they don't have time to dive into a large amount of research detailing the ifs and thens and the boundaries of this principle. And they just need the principle. Um, But I like, you can go too far with that as well. I completely agree. So where is that line? I don't know where it is. I'm still learning. But we don't talk about is my point that in academia, we aren't trained to think about when do you need to add nuance if you're writing a journal article for sure. But when is it okay to let go of that nuance and oversimplify so that you can reach more people? Yeah, I mean, I think that you do need to learn how to strike that balance, but sort of attention grabbing like. I don't know. There, there are ways to say things in a less nuanced ways, less nuanced way that like you get your point across, but you're actually like getting, you're actually conveying something worth Mm -hmm. saying and it has meaning Mm -hmm. to it. And then there's the other, Mm. um, the other way of saying things where you're just like saying empty things that sound nice yeah and not false binaries or giving just giving people certainty that they can just 
look at the high performers and make this diagnosis, you know? Yeah. Also, it's just like, I don't know. I was just comparing that tweet to my experience and it just didn't like, if I actually think about it, I don't think I've ever really seen a single person quote unquote succeed by pushing others down. And I don't even know what that really means, like how we would operationalize that uh, and prove a causal, you know, a causal error between the pushing others down and the person's success. Like certainly there's, uh, I've seen successful people that aren't that nice, but I don't know if their success is due to them not being nice. If anything, I think they'd probably be more successful uh, if they were a little nicer. So, yeah, I don't know. I just... It seemed like, uh, yeah, I guess like um, simplistic, but also wrong. And maybe, maybe that's why it bothered me. Like maybe simplicity is not that bad as long as like you're kind of accurately describing the world. But, you know, all models are wrong, right? <laughs> all models are oversimplifications of true realities. It's just, are they useful? So, you know, the guy you're quoting, he's quite controversial in my field. Uh, because he he does this all the time. His tweets always go viral. He constantly writes blog posts, and many of them are oversimplifications like this. And so a lot of people dislike it. They they are reacting just like you did, Paul. And I agree. Again, I agree with that sentiment. But at the same time, he has single-handedly put organizational psychology on the map. He got tenure within three years at the Wharton School of Business, um, having graduated from his PhD after just three years or something. Like, he single-handedly got people to think about, we should pay attention to how people think and behave, the psychology of people at work. Um, And most people in my field will agree and credit him for being very, very well-known. But then you got the people saying, but he's maybe well-known for the wrong reasons. And so it is, he is a bit of a controversial figure for that reason. Um, but as an example, you know, he, put, he was one of the people that pointed out the issues with the Myers-Briggs at work. And so he was, he was one of the main writers against the use of the Myers-Briggs in workplace settings. And I would say because of his renown, people listen to him. And, and I, you know, I don't have proof of it, but I would definitely say just like, reading his posts about that it's been shared by so many business leaders and now you know these business leaders will at least hesitate to use the myers-briggs right yeah, i, I say that's good being done i wonder so. if his criticisms of the myers-briggs might also apply to his two-type theory of workplace culture probably <laughs> <laughs> we should i think he's lost anonymity by this stage so maybe we should just say who it is uh because just to verify, we're talking about the same person. So Adam Grant. Mr. Adam Grant, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. If he's listening to this, let me just publicly say, I do not take a side in this argument. <laughs> so please don't fire me or write me a bad review if I'm on tenure one day. <laughs> oh, you're going to get canceled just for coming on the podcast. Oh, so. gosh, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, so yeah, speaking of getting canceled, um, tell us something that you think you... But what's your most controversial take about um, academia or, you know, culture in general? Probably that we should really trust any research article that we actually read. Um, I think that was the other point that I wanted to make, which is I said earlier, okay, let's assume the research is perfect and talk about the issues with the communication. Well, now let's talk about the research itself. I, I just have... 
I'm extremely skeptical of pretty much any article I come across, no matter how good of a journal it is. Um, lots and lots of reasons. Let's start by assuming it's in a good journal, because another of my points is we have too many horrible journals, too many easy to publish journals that um, the public doesn't know the difference, right? They think it's an academic journal. Great. They don't realize that it's one of those journals where you pay the editor as much money as you want and they'll publish without revealing it, because that does happen. There are many journals like that. Um, so assuming it's in a good journal, even in the good journals, uh, it's just it's very unlikely that the research is all that great at the end of the day. I mean, I'll start with saying the statistical components. I read a piece that looked at over 700 structural equation models published in top journals in our field. 40% of them reported the incorrect degrees of freedom. And for those who have no clue what I'm talking about, basically 40% of them had a major error in reporting the sample size that they used such that their models, that like their statistical model sample size differed from the sample size they reported, that they collected 800 people's data, but they reported running a model on maybe 740 or something like that because of the way you can, you can do the math. You can go from degrees of freedom and work backwards, figure out how many variables, how many people and things like that. 40% in the top journals, incorrect. Now, maybe it was just typo. Or maybe they made a small change that really doesn't matter. Like they maybe like added a single control variable or something like that. Or maybe they deleted a few outliers from the data set that they didn't discuss and they didn't talk about. I'm not accusing those 40% of faking things, even though there's a lot of recent evidence and a lot of controversy around some social, especially social psychologists and organizational since we're kind of a subdivision that have faked data. There's lots of things about that recently, most recently Dan Aerley, we can talk about him. Um, but uh, I'm not saying they sorry, I'm not saying they fake the data. I'm just saying there's so many possibilities of statistics gone wrong and so many moments, especially when you get into advanced statistics, where it's up to the researcher to decide. I mean, I do a lot of mixture modeling in one of my specialties, and that process is extremely subjective. There's a lot of moments where I get to decide how many latent classes make the most sense. Now, to be honest, I'm going to report everything. I'll report all of my fit statistics. I'll show exactly why I selected this. But at the end of the day, it's a somewhat subjective selection. Um, and so I just have seen all of these and think it's just it's just so easy for there to be even unintentional errors to come up, even in these top journals. That's probably my most controversial point, which is I just I just have a huge skepticism about research in general. Yeah, I think that's uh, not controversial among um us here in this room <laughs> but definitely probably controversial in academia uh, in general and in the public too i think mm -hmm. and then the, then there's like this question of how do you balance sort of critiquing um the research in academia with also trying to maintain the public's trust in academia mm -hmm. um and in science and especially like now it seems like People don't really trust science. Um, and yeah, and I think like some people have the view that we sort of need to just 
fix things in-house and not really talk about it in the public because that would just erode public the public's trust. But then other people are like, well, one of the things that maybe make people not trust us is that we don't tell them the truth and that mm-hmm. we are like hiding things. And so, yeah, it's definitely unclear to me, at least like what the best way forward is um, with that side of it. But just sticking to your main point, um, yeah, I think like people, I like I chalk it up to just people like really not being experts in statistics. And my view is just that there's no reason for a researcher to be an expert in theory and in methods and in statistics and in communication. Like we're doing five different jobs and they happen to correlate in some small section of you know society there's like a a few people who are really good at all of those things but other people might be good at other parts um, more than others and like why have we structured academia in such a way that to be successful you really have to play all roles and do all of it well and so then we put this pressure on people and they don't really know what they're doing but they have to do it and so we end up with what we end up with Um, yeah, it's a good point. I don't know how to respond to that because, um, in some ways though, it's like, I get what you're saying that we shouldn't be expected to do everything. And we definitely shouldn't. I mean, we all know how busy we are and how stressed we are, but at the same time, it's like, if we're not, if as academics, if we're not going to be the ones to do the statistics well, to communicate it well, who will? And I'll, I'll use COVID as an example here. I'll get myself even more canceled. I'll use COVID example because it frustrated me to no end a couple months ago when um, when Delta was first getting pretty bad and everyone was talking about how there's increases of people who in the, who are hospitalized who are already vaccinated. And it frustrated me to no end that all these journals were reporting percentage of people who are hospitalized who are vaccinated which is the opposite, the opposite from a probability theory perspective of what people actually should be talking about. They should be talking about the probability, the percentage of being hospitalized if you are vaccinated. You're flipping the conditional probability. And that math is completely different. It's actually pretty easy to work out if you had some of those base rate numbers, which you do from all the data that's out there. And I was able to calculate it myself. But the point I'm making is that I don't expect a news reporter to know Bayesian statistics and to know how to flip conditional probabilities. That's not their job. But the problem is, whose is it? If it's not their job, they're just going to report the percentage of people who are hospitalized who have been vaccinated. They're not going to report the flipped conditional probability, which they should be reporting, but they don't know that. And whose job is it to make sure that's the actual number being reported? So I guess that's my point. Like, I get it. We shouldn't be expected to do everything, but then who does the actual, it goes back to the communication piece to the public. Yeah, that was, I think I saw people talking about that on Twitter. Like people were Mm -hmm. focusing on probability vaccinated given hospitalized rather than probability hospitalized given vaccinated or something like that, right? So if you have 80% of people in a specific place are vaccinated, you might end up like 50-50 in the hospital between vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And it looks like, why, why are we getting vaccinated? 50% yeah. of people hospital, yeah. Uh, that was interesting. 
Um, yeah, like I, I think it's, it's a really interesting question. Like I <laughs> sort of went through this, a similar journey throughout my PhD, whereas I kind of started, started out and I was like, you know, super hoity-toity. Like if I could show an academic study in a debate with a conservative, say, and, and it, would, I, it would I just feel like a total mic drop. Like, but this, I have peer-reviewed evidence that I'm right. Look at this. Look at this abstract that I'm sending you that supports my point. Boom, mic drop. I win. Peer-reviewed evidence. And, you know, I would have, like, conservative uh, interlocutors kind of going, well, I don't really trust that because I, I just think, like, academia is like this left-wing cabal and, you know, I don't really trust those researchers. And, and then the move as a progressive is to go, well, you're anti-science, <laughs> like how, you need to believe science, hashtag. Um, and it was really interesting to me to go through my PhD and see academia on the inside and see kind of all the like shoddy kind of practices and mm -hmm. cut, cut corners and researcher degrees of freedom and gardens yep. of forking paths and like inconvenient data sets that just get left in the file drawer and like all these ways in which like these people <laughs> that I was arguing with were right. And I just like got to the end of my PhD and I'm like, yeah, like I don't, like I definitely think there's a lot of people in academia doing good work, mm -hmm. but I also think it's very, very hard to figure out who, what's good work and what's not and what's, re what's a reliable finding and what's not. And I mean, rates of replication in social psych are like incredibly low. Mm -hmm. Um and I just, like, I mean, from my experience, like, when you get into, like, sociology and those other areas where you're just playing around with big, large data sets, there's just so many researcher degrees of freedom. And the garden of forking paths is just so large that you can just play around with these data sets until, like, you can't tell, you know, you can't make it say exactly what you want, but you can, de you definitely have a lot of freedom to play around mm -hmm. with it. So like, yeah, I remember just getting to this point where I'm like, yeah, like I, I can't really say that they're wrong to be very skeptical um, about this stuff. But at the same time, like that's kind of a disaster, right? Because I mean, I, before I was an academic, I was a, a climate change activist and on climate change, I do think the core science of the, at least the physical processes of like the world warming up and, and why it's warming up is very solid. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, spent years being very, very frustrated at attempts to sort of discredit that science. And I, I just like, there are people out there like bad actors who are sort of like for dishonest reasons are working to discredit that science so um yeah it's a weird position to be in now to be on one hand sort of sympathetic with a lot of like what might get called science denial or science skepticism or like people not wanting just to accept they have to accept whatever i say by, because i have an abstract from a peer-reviewed journal but also like having this direct experience of like the problems that that kind of science denial can lead to in society and open up like when when bad actors can get in there and have a, a public that's skeptical of science and skeptical of experts like 
very, very bad things can come of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know where I stand on this. Like, Rachel, what you were saying, like, what should we be, like, blowing the trumpets very loud? Everybody, there's these huge problems in, in psychology and in academic psychology and other fields as well. Or should we just be working very hard behind the scenes to fix things? Because a lot of the time I think that the motivation for the powers that be to actually make changes might, it might be necessary to have the public involved, even maybe the government involved. We've talked about that on this, on this podcast before. You might actually need uh, lawmakers to get involved uh, to implement some badly needed reforms in, in science. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very, uh, very interesting prickly issue. I don't have a question, but uh, Rachel promised me, <laughs> I told you, you guys would need to be carrying me in this podcast. Uh, yeah, Rachel, I think you. Go ahead. Uh, well, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead, Rachel. No, you go. Uh, oh, I was just going to say that, um, you know, it is called more of a comment than a question. So it's okay. For a reason. If we're just commenting. Um, yeah. And, and I think that it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's super tricky. I think one of the differences between like people will say like the difference between climate science and social sciences like you know like one of them is a hard science and one of them is more soft <laughs> and um i'm and i think one of the is in particular with social psychology like one of the issues that people talk a lot about is or at least the people that i follow is the political biases and how they influence a lot of the researcher degrees of freedom and like mm -hmm. the the questions that researchers ask and sort of what ends up being published. Um, and I was wondering about the dynamics of that in organizational psychology, because it seems like you're more connected to the business world where maybe there's less of a, a ideological lean towards the left, but maybe not. And so, yeah, I was just wondering if that's a thing for you? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Yes and no, at the end of the day. Um, let me first say that my contextual bias is I'm at George Mason, and Mason's actually quite remarkable. We've got a pretty good culture of balance here, um, perhaps because we're right here in DC. So we, we just the area around us is surrounded by people from both ends of the spectrum. Um, I mean, because people literally from both ends of the spectrum have to come to DC and they bring their families and friends and so forth. And so um, it's actually quite nice here where I don't feel any ideological bias at my institution, especially in my department. And I would actually say I'm involved enough across the institution that I can generally say that with some exceptions. There are some departments I know have biases for sure. Um, so that that's the context here. Um, I would say there is definitely, if I had to aggregate across the U.S., it's probably biased. I'm left-leaning bias from the business world, especially as you start getting to law. Um, I mentioned that we, we study a little bit of employment law, of the legal side of recruiting and hiring, things like that. And so um, there are some left-leaning biases there on ter in terms of uh, how we consider what is unfair, for example, um, and the definition of fairness, uh, which for us, the rule of thumb is the idea of you're not hiring enough minorities, basically. Um, and so there's, I call that bias in the sense of there isn't the question of out of what pool. It's just a question of how many did you hire? 
Um, so I would call that potential bias. And um, you know, we draw we talk a little bit about microaggressions at work and things like that. Um, so there's definitely something there across the field, um, but not. I, I, but again, like because I'm at Mason, I don't feel particularly attacked on either end because of that. Um, but I probably that's probably not true in other universities and other departments. I want to, yeah, um, it's maybe not a segue, but it's just something that just occurred to me. Um, you're Asian, right? Yes. What's your take on the Harvard admissions lawsuit? Uh, the, I think there might be another one coming at Yale. Yeah. Like it, it certainly seems from the data that Asian students are being discriminated discriminated against in order to attain like like pr more preferred racial demographic breakdowns within you know undergrad student populations uh i, I i've talked to a few asian academics about this and like i almost feel like nobody knows quite what to say like mm -hmm. there's almost like this weird People are not very comfortable with it, like, like purely on the grounds that, uh, yeah, people like me are being discriminated against, but they also are aware that, like, it just opens up a big can of worms to be vocal about it in, like, complaining about it and, like, mm -hmm. what, you know, what does that mean? I, yeah, I'm just curious if you have uh, spent much time thinking about that and what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, yes and no. Um, I, I try not to comment too much on stuff that I don't feel like I know pretty well. And so to that end, like, I don't know the admissions process well enough. Like, my immediate reaction has always been like, yeah, it seems like there is some discrimination there against Asian applicants. Um, but I don't, I don't know enough to be able to say that confidently. Now, what I do know and have talked a lot about and researched is is more on the statistics side. It's the, it's the, how does standardized testing, how does it predict performance in academia? Um, I am pretty, I am comfortable, comfortable, I am comfortable to confidently say that standardized testing is good and unbiased. And um, I, I am comfortable enough to say that from a statistical perspective. Now, even then I caveat to say, that's not to say it's fair. And at least in statistics, we make a big distinction there. Fair talks about how it's employed, talks about some of the culture aspect. There's a lot more factors involved there. Whether or not it's fair is another question. But if we're just talking about is it biased against minority groups, the, the, the statistical evidence is pretty clear that it's not. It does not over or under predict different racial groups. If anything, there's evidence of meta-analyses that it actually over predicts minority performance. So it actually... Um, benefits them in a way, basically. Um, and that's just from regression lines and dividing between common and minority regression lines. Correcting for range restriction is another huge, huge, huge issue. People talk all the time about, oh, the relationship between um, standardized testing and GPA is only 0 0.09. Yes, but that's because of range restriction. You're only conducting the test on the top 10% anyways. And the moment you do that, you get attenuated correlations no matter what. So I'm getting too specific, sorry. Statistically, I'm pretty confident it isn't biased. But like I said, 
that gets into the question of fairness. Well, you, the result is often due to, I would blame a lot of K-12 education issues leading up to standardized testing that results in unfair treatment of certain minority groups. That does happen. And so I'm trying to draw a hard line there. I know that's also unrealistic. I can't just say, oh, the statistics is unbiased, but it's unfair. Like, that's a contradiction. I realize that. But that's what I say. <laughs> I mean, I think that makes sense uh, to me, at least. And Yeah. So when you say unbiased, what exactly do you mean? Because it, it sounds like you're saying what's just as predictive for each group. Is that, is that what you mean? Because, like, there's other ways things could be biased, I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about test bias, at least from the psychometrics perspective, we're talking about two things, which is the, the correlation is the same between groups, so they're just as predictive across groups, mm-hmm. and the predicted outcome does not change between groups either. Given a SAT score of 1300, it predicts the same GPA relative to actual GPA across different Mm -hmm. groups. So what's the kind of bias that people are claiming that there is? I think that the claim is that, first of all, there's the unfair treatment claim, which I don't argue against. Then second, a lot of people say, well, base rates differ. The base rates of of, um, minorities test lower than majority on certain tests or things like that. And that's talking about mean differences, mean as in um, average differences. That's just average group differences. But that's not what we care about. We care about does it predict an outcome? And so I think that piece of it, so the unfair treatment is valid, but the piece about mean differences, that Mm. is improper understanding of how tests work and how test biases work. Yeah, the arguments get get mixed up, right? I mean, because there's there's one argument that is just using this tool leads to disparate outcomes between groups. Therefore, it's a racist test, like the test is biased against the group. And then, but you people will also sprinkle in statements like, and it doesn't even predict performance. Mm-hmm. And so what you're kind of saying is like, on the first one, you know, yeah, that's kind of a philosophical debate. The second one, no, that, that's wrong. It, it, it totally predicts um, it totally predicts performance and it doesn't basically yeah and i would also add i've made this argument before if you're not going to use standardized testing everything else you could possibly use is even worse there's yeah. been demonstrated meta-analyses that letters of rec personal statements those are even more biased and have even worse outcomes for different racial group and other minority groups and so it's just like it's it just it it baffles me that people want to get rid of standardized testing without having a viable alternative like at the i think it's like we need to keep it we need to adjust how we use it to uh, to deal yeah. with the fairness component. it's interesting though see i i think i've i've heard that argument that well everything else is worse everything else is more prone to bias and i think that the people that want to get rid of standardized testing don't really care because I think they want to rely on biased processes because I think that they know that the biases are going to be deployed in a direction that they find pleasing, right? So, like, the UC system did away with the SATs. Mm -hmm. At at the same time, underrepresented minorities keep 
being uh, more and more like well represented in each new incoming class, right? So like to the extent that you do away with um, any kind of like metric that is telling you who you have to admit, you, you're now just free to engineer whatever kind of racial demographics you want at your institution, right? So I think mm -hmm. that gets lost on people where they, they kind of say, oh, well, you're going to be relying on like rec letters and, and that's going to lead to more bias. And I just think that, yeah, people don't care. Like they, they just mm -hmm. want bias in their favor rather than an unbiased metric. But I, I like, I think it's a shame. Like, I mean, uh, the... I, something really interesting I read was that, like, if Princeton, for example, relied purely on standardized testing, they would, you know, drastically increase the number of uh, individuals in the undergrad population from lower socioeconomic um, backgrounds. Um, just purely because, like, SES, SES predicts how well you do on the SATs, but not that well. Like, it's not, like... Um, among like the top scorers, quite a few of them are from relatively poor backgrounds. Um, and the SAT is their chance to sort of show uh, that they can sort of, um, yeah, achieve a high level of academic performance. But okay, so that was a, that was a bit of a tangent. We don't have that long to go. Should we, should we start talking about religion? Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> I did want to get to that. Um, so Stephen wrote a piece in the Heterodox Academy blog, um, basically arguing that religious people who feel strongly, and let me know if I'm getting any of this wrong, but um, people who feel strongly about their religion should be more vocal about it and um, discuss it on campus. And, you know, people, the, the sort of like interfaith dialogues that happen should be more uh, like stronger and like coming from people who are really trying to like argue for their side um, and, and what they believe in and trying to, and that that's really the way that you get people to hear about other, other religions and be exposed to them and, and all of that. Is that more or less the main point that you were trying to get across? Yeah, definitely. It was written primarily towards, um, so, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I am a belief I would call myself fairly strong in my beliefs in that sense. Um, and it's written against some of my peers, not like personal friends per se, but like the people in my networks that I've seen that tend to uh, shy away a bit from, uh, from, from heterodox views. And so, so a little bit of context, that piece was written for the Heterodox Academy. Um, I know Rachel and you and I are both involved in that. And for those who don't know, I think it's a great organization that promotes heterodoxy and views on campus, views across more than just religion. Um, they focused on religion for a couple months over the summer, which is why we were discussing this. Um, but even just the summer, some of the topics we talked about today, like use of standardized testing and how does research function in academia and being willing to question research, like that's a lot of the themes of Heterodox Academy. And so building off of that, I do see, I, I do see a lot of faith-based individuals who I would say are fearful of it because uh, they don't. They seem not to want to enter a, di a diverse environment where people disagree with them on religious matters. Um, and I counter that to say, I, I counter that by saying, I, the reason I call it fearful is I think if you really 
believe that you're right, there is no reason why you shouldn't go out and ask for people to question and to challenge you and to try to prove you wrong. And that's a good thing in the sense of if you really believe that, if you really have faith that your your view worldview, your religious worldview is the correct path, whatever you want to phrase it as, then put it out there. Let people try to prove you wrong. Um, and I think among religious leaders, there's often often concern over there as well. And part of it, I get, like parents who are concerned about their kids going to secular universities or something because they might be exposed to the wrong worldviews and things like that. And I just push back against that and say, why, why are you afraid of that? Um, if you think, if you believe in something, shouldn't you believe in it such that it, you don't think that other people will prove you wrong eventually? And you're willing, thus you are willing to engage with other religions, with other worldviews to say, maybe I'm wrong and to, and to, and to suggest that. So it was, it, overall, the piece was written towards kind of more faith leaders and people of faith to enter this atmosphere. Because what I'm viewing, what I see in discussions on interfaith dialogue and religious diversity often is kind of targeted towards people who might be more moderate, who might be more like, okay, I'm not sure what I believe and willing to consider and thinking like, okay, let me explore and make a decision and stuff like that. And it seems from my perspective to be targeted towards kind of that group. And I'm just saying, the piece was basically saying that actually we should be targeting people who are really strong believers in their faith and bringing them into the room. And it also adds into just my, my belief that debate is good, good, honest, respectful debate is good. And we need more of that. Um, I did public speaking and debate all through high school and it's just, it was a huge passion of mine. And I am constantly impressed looking at even students today who are debating extremely, extremely controversial topics. They were debating the election. They were debating the policies that are very controversial and they have to debate both sides. These students have to prepare cases for and against a controversial topic and be able to argue both sides at a moment's notice several times throughout the tournament. Um, and I just think that's incredibly important to have that kind of debate atmosphere, whether it's on po um, policy and politics or on religion. Yeah, so I guess one thing that I was wondering was, it, it sort of is a little bit unclear to me. I, well, there's two things. One is just like, why is that important in a university setting to be talking about religion? Like, is there, are you just, is like, I guess like, do you just think that because it's sort of a setting where a lot of young people, you know, come and live for four years and they're gathered and that's their community and and in their community, they should be engaging in it? Or is it just, or is there something that's tied to like academia and like intellectual pursuit and research where you think a missing piece of it is the like religious um, aspect? A little bit of both, I would say. Um, first, it's the setting. It's like you said, college is where you go to learn, question, explore, find out more about yourself, all those usual um, little things that people say about going to college to discover who you are and so forth. And I do think largely that's true, figuring out those elements. And so um, there's that. Uh, religion matters to a lot of people. Um, and so, and, and I would even argue for people who don't, uh, um, yeah, Rachel, you said you were an atheist at the beginning, like the lack of religion matters to you in that sense. I would make that argument. Um, 
And so, or like you care about the fact that you don't care. I know that's a bit of a backward statement and I'm putting words in your mouth. So feel free to correct me. But the point I'm making is that it is a worthy topic of discussion. Um, I offer from the workplace setting, I mentioned at the very beginning, I often study faith at work, religious uh, things. And um, there is, I'd say evidence that um, religious beliefs do impact how people behave at work and their commitments to certain things at work and their decision-making at work, um, you know, in line with the don't trust all research. I'd say, I don't know how much it matters, but I think it does based on what I've seen so far. Um, and then I would add finally that um, the, act, you may, the second piece you, you mentioned, I think is true, which is that um, it is a place to discuss anything and everything that could be important to human living. Now, I think it might depend on like your area of interest. Um, I just speak because in social sciences, I think religion fits very nicely in that discussion. Um, I don't know the hard sciences, so I'm not gonna try to argue whether or not it fits there. Yeah, so an an another piece that I was wondering about is, I mean, I've seen, I think I've seen like a few debates before between like Christians and atheists. Um, I don't think that I've seen any or heard any between like people of different religions, but either way, it's sort of like, it always struck me that like, there is something about religion that is inherently based on faith, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I get into a lot of arguments with my family who are all religious, except for the sisters visiting me. Um, and there, you know, at some point in the discussion, it always comes down to like, well, this is what I believe. This is my faith. And so what's the merit of having like an intellectual debate about something um, if at that the core of it, it is really like faith-based. I would say the follow-up question is faith in what? Because any, because any sort of statement is you're putting faith in something. When I say there's a relationship between faith at work and employee performance and commitment, I'm putting my faith in, you know, a couple hundred articles that I've read that talk about to some degree it matters. Um, and I would ask everyone, religious or not, to answer that question. If you say um, that I believe in this particular fa a fact about Jesus as a Christian, I'd ask, what are you basing that on? Um, and I ask why. And very often it might be something like, because my pastor told me, or because I read it in this Bible and things like that. Um, and those are, let me put it this way, like, it's, I would say, because I read it in the Bible is pretty similar to saying because I read it in a couple research articles. It, it, I, I would make that argument that you're basing it on somebody else's text. And then you can argue into the validity of each of those texts, right? You can argue, is the Bible valid? Is that research article valid? But like you can, I guess what I'm saying is you can go there. I'm not saying that it is. I, I believe it is, but like I'm, you can still go there. You can ask those questions. Or I believe because my pastor said it, I think it's the same as I, I believe because, um, because this renowned science, climate scientist said this about the climate. Like it's, it's the same thing, 
again, you can then argue the validity of that climate scientist versus this pastor. But you, but I, I'm, I guess I'm saying that like the logical train of thought is the same. You can go down both paths to make that discussion. Don't you sort of ultimately arrive at somewhere different if you go down either path? Like, um, like the in in science, like the the end of the path is just like physical evidence right like it's like you know yeah you're trusting a lot of links in this chain right like well this person wrote this in this article and then this person cited the article and then this person's telling me about the consensus in this field but at least in theory if you really just kept saying well prove it to me prove it to me prove it to me you would get to a point where people could prove it to you though you're just like put something in front of you that you could see with your eyes and you, you you'd have to sort of lie uh to 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 yourself or to other people to um to refute it um whereas the religious path the faith it you do get to this point like rachel was saying where like there's this there's this leap of faith there's no proof there's no like rational argument that's going to get you to a belief in god or jesus or anything like that there is just this leap of of faith involved um so isn't like i see what you're saying on a micro level like everybody's accepting things on faith the whole time but like i do think the science in the scientific worldview <laughs> there's a different like uh there's you know uh ostensibly there's a different endpoint to that that chain of uh, accepting things based on faith. And I think that's where I'd love to have that. I would think it's important for people of faith to have that conversation, to go down that path and see if it really does end there, where there is unrefutable evidence on one side. Um, and this goes back, circles back to our topic. I think that you know, going back to this, like, I cite the Bible versus I cite this research article, like, you keep digging, you will find flaws in that research article. You can make the argument, you could make the argument, you'll find flaws in the Bible. Also. And um, I think that is the, I guess that's argument, that's the worthy conversation, to go down those paths to see where is the irrefutable evidence. And as far as I'm, as far as my experience have exposed me to so far, and maybe it's limited experience, and if we have more time, you two could easily disprove me on something. But my experience so far is I have not seen something that con where the conclusion contradicts my beliefs, and if I went down the evidence, it was irrefutable. Yeah. Um, so before we started recording, we were chatting about how the most interesting parts of podcasts happen sort of an hour and a half in. <laughs> and uh, I think that we've um, successfully confirmed our theory. But unfortunately, uh, we found Steven... one piece of evidence towards that theory with no control variables <laughs> and no rep no repetition and repeated studies. I, I was simplifying for our uh, non-scientific <laughs> audience. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm for, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up. But if there's any of our listeners are um, sort of strongly believe in a uh, different religion and want to come on the podcast, we can have you come and debate Stephen at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, 
happy to to host that. And yeah, I, I did not that, agree to that, Rachel. <laughs> we did not have this conversation beforehand. <laughs> well, you know, I can just take out the words I did not, and then <laughs> I agree gotcha. to that. And, uh, um, yeah, but it was it has been uh, really interesting talking to you about. You know, we talked about a lot, and um, we covered a lot of ground for the short time that we've been talking. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your views with us. And hopefully we'll have you on again to, uh, debate religion. <laughs> I hope to be on again. We can talk about debating religion, but yes, that probably <laughs> would be fun. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, that was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.